Good morning and welcome to Kale and Company Live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. Great to have you with us on this Wednesday morning. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. And our guest on the show this morning on uh, Kale and Company, the author of uh, definitive biographies of Michael Jordan, The Life, also Kobe Bryant and Jerry West, among other books. And he has spent the uh, better part of the last uh, three decades interviewing NBA players, coaches, staff members, and many others while writing about the NBA. And his latest book, Just Out, Magic, The Life of Irvin Magic Johnson. And we welcome Roland Lazenby to the program. Roland, great to have you with us. Thank you, Ken. Much appreciated. Well, I, I tell you what, this is an incredible book. It, it truly is. It's the uh, biography to uh, to top all biographies, I think. Uh, where are we uh, reaching you this morning? I am in my home in Salem, Virginia. I recently separated a ruptured quad. Ah. Uh-huh. I, I am uh, post-surgery, but uh, heading into long rehab, and so... Mm-hmm. I am. Uh, I, I expected to be out and about uh, with the launch of the book, but um, I've, I've got to heal. <laughs> a- a- absolutely, absolutely. Salem, Virginia, home of a, uh, a a Red Sox minor league team for a long time. Oh yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. and yeah, uh, you, you know, uh, Salem is a beautiful little uncomplicated place. And we've lived here for a few years now. Ah, very nice, very nice. Well, uh, much has been written about uh, Magic Johnson uh, in the past, but certainly not uh, 800 pages worth from uh, from cover to cover. The the research and the interviews uh, extremely extensive, uh, giving uh, the reader some great insights that they will not get anywhere else. And uh, I know that uh, your basketball roots, uh, Roland, run very deep. Yes, you know, I, I really um, had been writing about college basketball with Billy Packer and other um, figures. Billy and I were doing some projects back in the early 80s, and we we had some success, and the publisher said, what would you like to do? And I said, I'd love to do... Back then, they were, uh, the publisher was doing the Dallas Cowboys Blue Book, uh-huh. which was very successful, a hardcover preseason guide. And I said, I'd love to do a Boston Celtics green book. And so I did that for five seasons with the Celtics. I couldn't have had a better introduction to the NBA than working uh, you know, with the franchise back then, all the people read our back was great. Uh, and the publishers very quickly had me doing a piston um, project, similar thing I did for five years and a Lakers. So it was, um, it was a busy time, but I'll tell you, I, I just love getting in that old garden early before game <laughs> to watch Larry Bird do his shoot around. It was with Joe Cotato, the trainer. It was such a wonderful time. Oh, absolutely! And the atmosphere in that uh, that old Boston Garden was just uh, just amazing. No, no doubt about that. Uh, this book about uh, Magic Johnson, 
really goes back. I mean, it, it traces his ancestry from uh, from long ago. Uh, tell us a, a little bit, if you would, about uh, his heritage and, and how it impacted his life. Well, well you know, uh, when I did Michael Jordan the Light, which is now in 21 languages, it just wow. came out in Portuguese. Wow. <laughs> it, it came out nine years ago from Little Brown. But, you know, these are global figures now, and uh, what we found, the Magic Book is already slated to be in seven languages, my Kobe Bryant book in 12, but these are important cultural figures, these NBA players. Jerry West, too, Yeah. Um, uh, with these biographies I've done. And so uh, I was able to trace uh, Michael Jordan's uh, uh family to his great-grandfather on the coastal plain in 1891 of North Carolina. With Jerry West, I was able to trace his ancestry back to Jamestown. Wow. But, uh, the, you know, Lord D. La War, Thomas West, Delaware, <laughs> all of that named after. And Jerry West, part of the family, was kicked out of the family, ended up in West Virginia. <laughs> With magic, the data mining allowed me to find his great-great-great-great-grandmother with the single name Farabee on the plantation of a very powerful family in North Carolina in the 1830s. And what that opened up was an amazing backstory, just as my Jerry West biography did. And, and you know, uh, it sounds crazy. People want a basketball book, but um, it's funny how when you do a biography, and I think it's particularly true for black families, it's important because history is sort of just glossed over uh, so much of what really was the 19th and 20th centuries for black families. And what a powerful thing in uh, in and around Magic Johnson's family. And, And there's so much of that character that emerges in their lives then that that helps explain so much of Magic Johnson's own parents and how they were such formative people in shaping his life. Well, no doubt about that. And uh, Magic uh, grew up in Lansing, Michigan, where he uh, encountered a a number of uh, incidents that involved integration. Really, he was thrust right in the heart of the, you know, and of course, New England and Boston know how nasty those school busing uh, battles were for integration in the 70s. And he was thrust right in the middle of it, even before he got to high school. They were integrating a, what was a 99% white high school, Everett High School in Lansing back in the early 70s, and all of uh, Magic's... Um, siblings, older siblings, were bused there, and there were um, kids throwing rocks at the buses when the black students arrived, and uh, violence that required shutting down the schools, and Magic's older brother Larry was one of the first five black boys in the basketball program. They were all on the JV, and right before Christmas of 1972, the coaches dismissed Larry and four other kids from the team. And that, I mean, and four of the kids left quietly. Larry's, uh, Magic's brother Larry was furious and raised Kane with the coaches, not just then, but for years saying that 
his brother Irvin would never come there. And of course, in junior high, Irvin was already the toast of the city. They were writing up stories in the local paper about him. And so it set up this drama. Um, and before Irvin ever played a game at Everett High School, he ended up having to go there. His parents said, these are the rules. You have to go there. And before he ever played a game at Everett, the principal called him in and said, we're having all this racial trouble. We need you to step in and lead us away from it. And Irvin, 15 years old, looked at him and said, how am I going to do that? <laughs> and the principal said, you'll figure it out. And that pretty much is what Irvin did. He wasn't even nicknamed Magic at the time. No, no. But, uh, you know, you, you talk about Lansing, Michigan, and their uh, busing. And uh, as I'm sure you know, uh, a similar thing uh, took place in Boston uh, during oh, the, the 1970s. Yeah. yeah. A, a very painful time. The two cultures black and white really didn't know much about each other. And, you know, everybody from educators, uh, I was a coach. I was a varsity head coach at age 24. Wow. Starting in 1976. And I had, I had taught and coached in Petersburg at age 23. I even coached uh, an eighth grade linebacker named Ricky Hunley who went wow. off to play in Denver in the pros. And he that uh, the school in Petersburg where I worked uh, was shut down by racial violence. And there was just so much misunderstanding. And so the the first third of this book, in so many ways, is all of that work. It's never told and never explained before. All of those times and how Irvin Johnson handled himself and how that basketball team brought the community together. And the the two men who had kicked his brother off the team ended up being his high school coaches. And and they you know, they fought through this very painful thing that uh you know, his older brother went down a bad path after being kicked off the basketball team. It was a bitter thing for the family. Yep. And yet they all managed to get through it. Well, it's a fascinating book. Roland, can you stay with us? We have to take a quick break. And, uh, yeah, and, of course. And uh, the book is Magic, The Life of Irvin Magic Johnson. Roland Lazenby is uh, with us and so happy to have him on this Wednesday morning. We'll take a break. Kale and company will continue right after these words on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. Be right back. Welcome back. Our guest this morning, Roland Lazenby, an author of the brand new book just out, Magic, The Life of Irvin Magic Johnson. And Roland, of course, most of us came to know uh, Magic uh, during uh, his days at Michigan State and, of course, the 1979 championship game against uh, Indiana State and, and Larry Bird, ultimately those uh, Lakers-Celtics matchups, uh, Magic and Bird, and, and really that, uh, I, I think at that time, pretty much just saved the NBA. Uh, it did, you know, and it, it, it's funny. Larry and Irvin Magic both came along as sort of mysteries for the American public back at heading into that NCAA championship. Right. Audible, 
there wasn't a lot of televised basketball. And a lot of fans early on just assumed Larry was black. <laughs> and so suddenly, <clears throat> as things evolved, here was this NCAA championship led by these two players that were tall, ball-handling forwards, really. Larry was a guard in high school. Magic obviously played guard as forward center at Earth. At Lansing, that neither one of them was defined as a guard at that time. Eventually, Urban would be. But the meeting of them in that NCAA championship game remains one of the highest rated uh, NCAA uh, final four pod, um, broadcast ever. And that thing really set the table for Larry and Magic to enter. Yeah. And here it would be. That point to hit Larry in the draft and the Lakers. There's a big coin flip between Chicago and LA for who will get the number one pick. Larry's already taken red, and in a, a slick move from the 78 draft, he has to be signed. But there's a coin flip. Think about this if Chicago had won that coin flip. Irvin would have been in the Eastern Conference. Magic right. and Larry would have gone at each other. But they one in L.A., one in Boston. Magic and his Lakers win the 80 championship. Here come Larry and the Celtics. They win in 81. And the NBA, which was in terrible financial shape, uh, the broadcast ratings had dipped in 79 by 25%. Uh, yeah, they're, they're, and here comes this great gift. Oh, absolutely, two of them, and uh, you know it, it's funny because you mentioned that, and and I remember when the championship series uh, in the NBA was on tape delay; it wasn't even live. Sometimes you couldn't see Magic's game, uh, but on tape delay in mo- many parts of the country, when he in Game Six in 1980 against Philadelphia. Kareem had put the Lakers in position. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the great half-court weapon, had put the Lakers in position up 3-2, but he badly sprained his ankle. In reality, it didn't look like he would play again. And Magic, nobody thought the, the Lakers would go into Philadelphia with Kareem out. And here comes Magic with 42 points and 15 rebounds and a bundle of assists. And all of his other teams, had 37 points, and they got going on the Sixers, and the mismatches, I think, confused the Sixers a bit, and here come the Lakers winning it, but it was it was another basketball rumor, because so many Americans weren't, weren't able to see it live on TV and right. woke up the next morning to find out about it. Exactly, exactly. Well, and we, and we just have a limited amount of time, and uh, boy, there's so much in this book. But uh, fast forward to the Lakers, Showtime uh, in, the, in the 80s, legendary, uh, on and, uh, as we find out, off the court. Uh, as well, Let, let's talk a little bit about the relationship that uh, Magic had with uh, Lakers owner Dr. Jerry Buss, a very uh, unusual relationship between player and owner. Yeah, as Jeannie Buss explained to me in her 
interviews for the book, she said almost immediately my father and Magic were soulmates. And that really created some problems. I mean, Jerry Buss was nuts about Magic. The first time he'd seen him play was on TV in that NCAA championship game against Larry. And, you know, they win that championship and in his very first season. You know, those great Boston Celtics teams that Bill Russell had punished, absolutely punished the NBA for years. And that had continued, you know, in various forms. Most NBA owners never got to celebrate a championship. And here's Jerry Buss soaked in champagne his very first season as an owner. And that just, I mean, he was in love with Magic, and he, he began negotiating this 25-year contract, and, you know, and they were going to keep it hidden, and Busk had to tell everybody about it. And so he began leaking the news about it, and that just wrecked the Lakers' chemistry because, you know, Busk was talking about Magic being a part of the family and being running the franchise, and here are all these teammates. You know, here, here's this this young player. I mean, he's a great player, but come on, Kareem is the guy everybody has to really scheme to stop. And here they're talking about all this stuff, and Bus is effusive, and they're he and Magic are out in the clubs with all the girls and living <laughs> the high life, and L.A. just sort of melted down over it in terms of the team itself. Kareem said it was like we weren't a part of the family. He told me that in an interview. He was still angry about it in '89 when I when I interviewed him about it. Yeah, uh, and uh, you know, you talk about the close ties between uh, Dr. Jerry Buss and and Magic Johnson. Uh, I understand, and, and from your book, that uh, you know, Magic would hang out with the players on the road, but at home, it was uh, always uh, with, with Jerry Buss. He'd be over at Jerry Buss's place, shooting pool at two or three a.m. They would go, and Bust, you know, was moving in as the impresario. There would be uh, prize fights at the forum. They would go to USC football games. It it was a constant thing. And, uh, you know, the, the rest of the group couldn't crack that. And it was always something. And when you look back on the chemistry issues that evolved, it's amazing what the Lakers were able to do in and around their problems. They, you know, they went to the NBA Finals nine times in that first decade of Magic's career, and they won five. Yeah, uh, and yeah. Celtics fans are, are well aware of that. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that '84 championship for the Celtics. You know, Magic always liked to present himself as this great winner who'd won at every level. But in high school and in college, he had had meltdowns in the playoffs. As great a winner, as great a mind, as great as a competitor, things would get out of hand for him. And that certainly happened in 84. And it was a pattern. And it uh, that's part of the narrative. And that's the reason people don't like to to have a biography done. It's understandable. But it's also important with these great figures to realize it's not easy. It wasn't easy for Magic. He drove his own agenda from being a young boy. But um, he had to overcome things to be that champion he's so proud of being. 
No doubt about that. And, of course, Magic was the, the first high-profile athlete uh, to be diagnosed with uh, HIV, and this book uh, chronicles that like uh, no other has ever done in great, great detail. A very emotional time. And, of course, at, at that time, uh, you know, having AIDS, that was pretty much a death sentence at that time. Freddie Mercury had just died right before um, Matt Magic announced he was HIV positive in November of 1991 on the eve of that season. And it shocked the world. It it truly did. And Irvin, this big, happy, uh, what Sports Illustrated said was one of the two greatest smiles of the 20th century, along with Louis Armstrong, this great, smiling, loving, uh, high-five slapping competitor, the man running the fast break, suddenly had a deeply furrowed brow. But he calmed down, and he handled that in ways that just astounded his teammates uh, and the great Chick Hearn. They didn't see how he could be so calm and cool and go make the announcement. They were all sobbing in the locker room minutes before he did it, but he went up in the forum and told the world. Well, I, I will tell you, this is an, a, a fascinating book. I, I've read probably half of it now. It's 800 pages, folks, and I recommend it highly. And so much more to talk about. We'll have to have you back, Roland, because there's a lot more Happy to, to do it. A lot more to cover on uh, on this book for sure. Uh, Roland Lazenby, Magic is the book: The Life of Irvin Magic Johnson. Uh, very much enjoyed my time with you this morning, and uh, we will have, likewise, Ken. We will have to do it again. Thank you, sir. Happy to do it. All right, Roland. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Hey, you have a great day. You as well, Roland Lazenby, L-A-Z-E-N-B-Y, and uh, check it out because if you're a basketball fan, you won't want to miss it. We will uh, take a break. Kale and Company live right here, WKXLNHTalkRadio.com. We will be back with you right after these words. Welcome back, Kale and Company live here on WKXLNHTalkRadio.com. There's so much going on in the news these days and in sports, you hardly know uh, where to begin. But I, I will begin with this. Uh, the World Series matchup is set. And in in my mind, I, I mean, I, I applaud the, the Texas Rangers who uh, qualified uh, on uh, Monday night, disposing of the Houston Astros, which I was very pleased about. Didn't want to see Houston in there again. So I'm glad Texas and uh, Nathan Avaldi uh, is in the, the World Series. And the Arizona Diamondbacks, they trailed in the uh, in the NLCS three games to two going into Philadelphia Monday night. Not only did they win Monday night, they won Tuesday night over the Phillies. Texas and Arizona starting Friday night in Arlington, Texas. It'll be an all-indoor uh, World Series. I was rooting for the Phillies, so there would be one team that played its games actually outside, uh, and, you know, part of the World Series, I think, is the crisp fall air, attending those games, or even just watching them on TV, uh, seeing that cool, crisp air. Sometimes you see the player's breath, <laughs> and, uh, you know, 
that's what I was hoping for, Philadelphia, at least a team that played outdoors. But it'll be an all-indoor World Series played in Arlington, Texas, and Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, Texas and Arizona, I predict this World Series will be one of the least watched of all time. And why do I say that? I mean, I, I applaud these teams. Listen, they're terrific. And the people of, uh, of Texas, the Dallas area, they're excited about it. Uh, the people in Phoenix are excited about it. I don't think the rest of the country is very excited about it, uh, in, in all honesty, because there are teams without very many, if any, high-profile players. They both did it as teams. Uh, They have uh, great bullpens, both of these teams, which were very integral into them uh, winning their respective league championships. And I applaud them for it. The teams are very well put together without a great number of superstars. Corey Seager for Texas is probably the highest profile player on either one of these teams. And he's below the radar of uh, of most people. If you're a baseball fan, you know who he is. But, you know, he's not Bryce Hopper. He's not Mike Trout. You know, he's not in that category. He's certainly not Shohei Otani, but nobody is. But there are no alluring superstars to watch these World Series games. I mean, uh, you're not going to watch it. You're not going to see... You're not going to see Bryce. You're not going to see Mike Trout. You're not going to see Shohei Otani. You're not going to see the names that, you know, just very casual baseball fans recognize. So my prediction is that this will be one of the least watched World Series of all time. I Listen, I could be proven wrong. I could be proven wrong. But even as a baseball fan, honestly, I'm not even that excited about it, to tell you the truth. Uh, I probably won't watch all the games in their entirety this time around. But give them credit. Texas and Arizona, you know, people say, oh, when you you know started the season, you never thought it was going to be uh, Texas and Arizona in, in the World Series. Hey, when you started the playoffs, you didn't even think it was going to be Texas and Arizona uh, in the World Series. But they made it through, and it just shows you the baseball fan, or just shows you as as anybody that you know, it all comes down to pitching. Really, it does. I mean, you can have as many offensive weapons as you want, but pitching and defense uh, really are the keys in winning championships. And uh, perhaps that is why the Red Sox have made a decision and they have found their next head of baseball operations. The new director of baseball operations is, uh, according to all reports, it hasn't been made official yet, but it looks like it's Craig Breslow who uh, pitched for the Red Sox in parts of five seasons, actually was a member of that 2013 uh, World Series championship team uh, with the Boston Red Sox. He's 43 years old. Even when he played the game, I mean, when you heard him interviewed, either before or after a game, I mean, he just stood out. I mean, he was uh, very, very articulate, very thoughtful in his responses, not just the 
the standard responses you get from most athletes. Craig Breslow was very well-spoken, very articulate, Yale-educated, and, uh, you know, he, he could be doing uh, anything, just about anything in life. And uh, he, he, he is a scientist, but let's hope he succeeds in the science of baseball. And I think they, they bring in, the Red Sox bring in a guy like Breslow because, number one, he's a former player. You don't see very many former players in that position as, uh, you know, director of baseball operations. And I think the players will respect that. Uh, that he was a former player and a very good reliever over the years for a number of teams uh, in Major League Baseball. But more importantly, he knows pitching like few do. And that is certainly one area where the Red Sox are desperate. And I think the emphasis will be on pitching and defense, which was really the downfall of the uh, 2023 Boston Red Sox. And, and let's face it, it's been a problem for a number of years. I mean, the Red Sox have finished last in the American League East three out of four years with more resources. And when I say resources, I mean money, uh, you know, and revenue. More money and revenue than, uh, than most other teams. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, they have misspent it many, many times in the past. And, uh, you know, most of their emphasis has been uh, on the offensive uh, side in, in terms of signing uh, free agents. They did sign uh, Kenley Jansen, their, their closer, uh, to a deal uh, prior to last season. Uh, but uh, we'll see how that works out in the long run. But Breslow, former player, knows pitching has the respect of players, and, uh, you know, he, he checks all the boxes, except he's never done that particular job before as being the director of baseball operations, but uh, he served as the assistant general manager for the uh, Chicago Cubs for a while, and listen, he knows the game, and he's go- I, I think it was a good hire. I really do. Uh, there are a lot of people who did not interview with the Red Sox, uh, for various reasons, I mean, their track record. They, they won the World Series in 2013. Ben Sherrington, a New Hampshire native, was the Red Sox general manager in 2013. He was gone the next year, uh, fired by the Red Sox. In 2018, they won the World Series over the Dodgers. Dave Dombrowski was the uh, director of baseball operations. He was fired the next year. And now he's in Philadelphia. Uh, So I think there were candidates out there who might have had more experience in that particular position than Craig Breslow. But I don't think, I I think Breslow has experience that those candidates did not have. And that's the fact. He's done it. He's been there. He's been on the mound. He knows pitching. Hopefully he's not too wrapped up in analytics. And, uh, you know, I know he's a very smart guy. He's got a scientific background, graduated with high honors from Yale. He's a Connecticut native. But more importantly, he's played the game. He's been there. He's done that. And uh, we shall see. I think the Red Sox are making a good hire 
in Craig Breslow. I think he'll be, uh, you know, good with the media. Not to say Heim Bloom was not, nor Dave Dembrowski or Ben Sherrington, but I think Breslow is very thoughtful. I remember him as an interview uh, when he was playing. I mean, just just very, very thoughtful and meaningful answers to questions. Uh, and and it stood out because most athletes, you know, just speak in, you know, <laughs> all kinds of cliches. Not Craig Breslow. Not a cliche guy. All right. There's a lot more to talk about. Probably with a lot more relevance to the world at large, but... Uh, congratulations to Craig Breslow, and uh, we will see what uh, kind of an impact he will have with the Boston Red Sox in the years to come. We'll take a break. Kale and Company, WKXL, NHTalkRadio.com. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Kale and Company Live, WKXL. NHTalkRadio.com From uh, WMUR News Ten major candidates are on the ballot for New Hampshire's first in the nation primary But and there's a big but here President Joe Biden won't be one of them as we uh, discussed yesterday with Neil Levesque They're coming down to the deadline to get on that primary ballot Joe Biden's name will not be on it. Candidates have until the end of the day on Friday to file their paperwork, but Biden's campaign has informed the New Hampshire Democratic Party that it will not put the president's name on the primary ballot. Still holding a grudge, Joe, huh? Right? Finish fifth in the 2020 New Hampshire primary. So... I'll show you I won't put my name on the ballot for 2024. David Scanlon, Secretary of State, said, I think personally it's a mistake. He's not putting his name on the ballot here. The move, though, not unexpected. We talked about it yesterday with uh, Neil Levesque. He expected uh, the name not to appear. Because the Democratic Party is attempting to get New Hampshire to relinquish its first-in-the-nation status. They want it in South Carolina. Party chairman uh, Ray Buckley, Democratic Party chairman, said, well, it certainly was expected. And uh, that's why a prominent uh, group of Democrats across the state are organizing to do the write-in. Buckley said Biden remains the best choice for New Hampshire voters. <clears throat> Minnesota Democratic Congressman Dean Phillips is expected to file his name on the ballot later this week, but even with the incumbent's name absent, Buckley said the writing campaign will be enough to deliver Biden the win in New Hampshire. Boy, I tell you what, I don't know, Ray. I can't envision too many people going into that ballot box and taking the pencil and writing in Joe Biden. I can't imagine it. I can imagine them maybe filling in a dot for Joe Biden if he was on the ballot, actually putting his name on the ballot when it's not there. And that's a little sketchy. So anyway, uh, 
Secretary of State Scanlon has not yet set the date for the New Hampshire primary. He said he won't be able to set it until after the filing period closes, and he's still watching to see where some of the other states are going to set their primary dates. And, of course, uh, under New Hampshire state law, the primary must be held at least one week before any other primary or a similar contest. The DNC decided to change its calendar, putting South Carolina in the leadoff spot, but Scanlon is adamant that New Hampshire has the right and legal obligation to go first. I mean, it's state law, but, you know, in New Hampshire that uh, we're first, but the other states uh, aren't intimidated or that's not going to stand in their way, right, just because it's a a state law in New Hampshire. Uh, Scanlon said he expects more challenges to the the first-in-the-nation status in 2028 when both parties could be mounting contested primaries. But apparently this one is not going to be contested and at the moment, at the moment, it, it would appear, and I mean, we're, you're a few months away. Let's see. It'll be January sometime. We've got November. We've got December. Uh, and then to the middle of January. But Biden's got his, got, has to get his name on there by Friday. It's not, it's not going to happen. They've said that. But I just, I just can't... Uh, can't imagine the Democrats uh, allowing him to run again, but as the days and weeks go by, it's pointing more in that direction. Scanlon said New Hampshire is a good state to lead off the primary season, citing its small size, high voter turnout, and low barrier for candidates to get on the ballot. So there you have it. And, uh, The name Biden will not be on the ballot for the 2024 presidential primary. And we don't know the date yet, but uh, I think it'll be the 23rd of January. The Iowa caucuses will be uh, Monday, January 15th. And the New Hampshire primary will be Tuesday, January 23rd. That's my prediction. What do I know? Not much. Uh, Republicans, they're in turmoil on Capitol Hill. They're they're looking like you know what. Uh, They chose Representative Mike Johnson as their latest nominee for House Speaker, desperate to to, uh, unite uh, their fractured majority and end all the chaos just hours after an earlier pick abruptly withdrew in the face of opposition from... Donald Trump, Johnson of Louisiana, a lower-ranked member of the House GOP leadership team, becomes the fourth Republican nominee in what has become an absurd cycle of political infighting since Kevin McCarthy's ouster as uh, Speaker of the House as GOP factions continue to jockey for power. The House will convene at noontime today, ahead of a floor vote. Johnson, who won the majority behind closed doors, will need almost all Republicans in the public roll call to win the gavel. And, of course, uh, uh, yesterday there there was turmoil on Capitol Hill. 
Uh, Representative Emmer from Minnesota uh, got the initial uh, go-ahead to seek the speakership, but he withdrew hours later because uh, Donald Trump suggested that if they elected Emmer to uh, the gavel, to the Speaker of the House, that it would be a disaster. So Emmer backed out, and now Mike Johnson from Louisiana is the guy. So we shall uh, see how it all plays out today around uh, noontime. And if you're hearing this broadcast uh, when we air it again after 7, uh, you'll, you'll already know, I'm sure, uh, what, uh, what took place uh, on Capitol Hill. But uh, it just makes us look weak. Uh, it really does. I mean, we look weak enough anyway. We didn't need this. And uh, we'll, we'll hope to get a, a new speaker because it, it paralyzes the government. I mean, that, that's what it does. It paralyzes the government. We need, need a speaker, and hopefully the Republicans can get their act together and, uh, and do it by the end of the day. Of course, uh, you've probably heard that New Hampshire has joined 41 other states suing Facebook and Instagram for using addictive algorithms that exploit the developmental vulnerabilities of children and trap them into never-ending use. A complaint was filed in Merrimack County Superior Court alleging that Meta, the site's parent company, purposefully designed its popular platforms, Facebook and Instagram, to include addictive features with the goal of enticing and prolonging the time that children spend scrolling on the platforms. I don't know what the, the uh, New Hampshire and the 41 other states you know, want to derive from this, whether it's financial. How about the parents? Where are the parents in all of this? You know, I mean, I'm not a big fan of uh, some of these platforms, especially uh, well, Instagram is certainly addictive to some, and TikTok, I guess uh, TikTok comes under a different category. I, I don't know. Uh, but at any rate, uh, you know, there has to be some parenting. I, I'm glad, honestly, that my kids are grown up. I would not want to be a parent right now. I would not want to be. Uh, and there were just so many things uh, going on in our society today. And, uh, you know, I, I have empathy for the, the parents of of youngsters these days. I mean, it starts at a very, very young age, but there has to be more parenting done. Uh, I don't know what good a lawsuit is going to do. I, I really don't, what they uh, expect to derive from it. Um, we will find out in the days and weeks ahead, and we will keep you posted as best we can. Bruins won again last night. They're still undefeated. Celtics open up their schedule tonight in New York against the Knicks. So many things to talk about, so little time. But we thank you very much for joining us right here. Kale and Company Live, WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, presented by Northeast Delta Dental, with individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle. Learn more 
and find your plan at Delta Dental Covers Me. And remember, folks, always look on the bright side of life. Yes, there is a bright side, folks. And have a great Wednesday, everybody. We'll